After Donald Trump's meteoric rise to the presidency, baffled pundits attributed his success to a familiar and elusive demographic. The white working class has become somewhat of an obsession since Trump's victory. But despite their role in delivering one of the greatest political upsets in recent history, their beliefs and motivations remain hard to define. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we speak to a scholar who's interviewed hundreds of white working class voters to determine what makes them a powerful voice of political resentment. Plus, we take a look at one of the main grievances of the white working class, immigration. We'll explore how easily numbers about immigration can be misinterpreted and trace the origin of immigration to the dictionary makers of the 19th century. But first, if you're running for president, you won't get very far before you don a hard hat and split a hot dog in an all-American blue-collar photo op. But despite this, for many white working-class people, their experience of politics has been one of disenfranchisement and exile. Justin Guest is an associate professor of public policy at George Mason University and the author of The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality. Justin, your new book examines what you call the complicated marginality of the white working class in America. In what ways are people in America's white working class marginalized? It is a group that's so large, it's ironic it feels weak. That's right. Their marginality is is painfully paradoxical. How can a group so strong feel so weak? This is a group of people that once numbered many more um, than they do today. White people without college degrees, without university education, used to predominate the American population. And thanks to immigration uh, and higher fertility rates among minority groups, and also more and more people going to university, that group's numbers have dwindled, their political power has dwindled, their sense of social centrality has dwindled. But perhaps more interestingly and more subjectively, their marginality is really underpinned by three key perceptions. White working class people feel relatively outnumbered. Second, they feel like they are external. They feel like they're on the outside of boardrooms and and the chambers of legislatures, the people who make decisions in our societies, they feel like they are left out. And third, finally, they feel like they are being discriminated against on the basis of being white and being poor. And so these three feelings, along with the other objective realities, are really creating this sense of marginality in a group of people that was once very powerful. I imagine there is a perception on the part of the mass media, the popular media, that everybody's getting a college education, and the college education is the only thing that really matters. And I can imagine that that feels threatening. It does. I mean, I think that there's a a feeling like there's a consensus uh, against you in some ways. Um, But also the, the simple fact is that in the old days, you know, as recently as 30, 40 years ago, one could go through life without a university degree and not be excluded from running for office, not feel excluded from, you know, reaching middle class and upper class status in American in the American marketplace. But there also wasn't as much judgment about those who decide to pursue a life without a university degree. Those dynamics have created a divide between people who have such degrees and people who don't. 
I think it's important, Sarah, though, to recognize that we don't have to necessarily define white working class people by whether or not they have a university degree. We could define them by income, by culture, by the kind of job they do, whether they use their hands or whether they're paid on a wage, an hourly wage versus a salary. But what the statistics are showing us is that the divide between those who do have university educations and those who don't is really uh, quite determinant in the political attitudes and the outlook they have on their society and life and politics more broadly. And I think that our politics today are less about left and right in the way that they once were before and more about open versus closed. By open and closed, you mean immigration, open borders and not? So immigration is perhaps the most ubiquitous issue that kind of crystallizes the politics of open versus closed. But open versus closed also relates to trade. It relates to interventionism in international politics, international affairs. These issues connect to a more supranational universe, so a universe above the level of the nation state and, and that yield a lot of our power to things that we have less control over, like markets, like uh, climate change, and like the movement of people and mobility of goods and services and currencies. So why today do we not perceive the grievances of the large, white, working-class political body to be more about class than about race? You can't craft the politics of Trumpism uh, without engaging in some sort of resentment of racial uh, diversity in America. Donald Trump didn't unify uh, people on a, on a class basis. He unified them on a racial basis. So for folks who were seeking a moment when finally the classes would rise up together, in, in fact, actually, race was used to divide the proletariat. Karl Marx actually remarked about this in, in, in the 19th century in England when he complained about how landowners and the owners of capital were using the differences between the English and Irish to split the working class. In many ways, that's precisely what's happened in the United States in both recent and older history. How large is the American white working class population? Well, it depends on how we define them. If we are focusing on university education or income, we're talking about a third of the population, more or less. So of the three things that you found are the grievances this group mostly feels, being outnumbered, being excluded, being discriminated against. Talk about exclusion. They feel that they're not in the halls of power. They feel excluded. And, and you know, there's a lot of and new evidence that's emerging to support this view, actually. A colleague of mine, actually, Nick Carnes, he just uh, finishing a book right now that finds that a mere 2% of the American Congress are of working class background. And people can sense that. They can sense when their elected representatives are, are do not sound like them, do not live like them, cannot relate to the lives that they live. What about the perception that they are discriminated against? Is this both actual discrimination and a perception that they're being maligned? Well, I think it can be both. You know, white working class people hear words like redneck, hillbilly, hick, white trash. These are the words that people use to refer to people who are both white and poor. And they feel like they're losing out on jobs. They feel like they're losing out on housing and government benefits, contracts, education places on the basis of being white and poor. You know, while in some cases it's imagined, in, in other cases they very well might be right. These words, these slurs, these senses of judgment exist. And there is a constituency of Americans that uh, wish that many just white working class people would just go away. 
How strong is the feeling of threat through immigration? Immigration has emerged as the big boogeyman. And it is because it has possesses so much political currency. Everything from, you know, the politics of jobs and whether or not immigrants take them or create them, the politics of, of humanitarianism and whether we owe something to refugees and should be admitting them into our country and rescuing them or whether they are a burden. They bring in the politics of national identity and what is our identity. Immigrants bring together all of these different questions that really plague our society and perplex us into a single issue. And so it is driving much of our politics today because it really offers the whole polemical package. And are the numbers accurate? Is the perception real? Or is it a fear driven by numbers about immigration and illegal immigration that haven't really come to pass? Generally, the fear is completely unfounded, actually. Uh, all of the numbers related to immigration suggest that immigrants are enormous contributors to American society, that they assimilate actually relatively quick, quickly, no matter how you measure assimilation and integration. And they demonstrate that immigrants are not a long-term burden on the American welfare state. And in fact, the numbers in terms of people being admitted uh, suggest that uh, undocumented immigration has slowed down to a near standstill over the last 10 years and was really affected actually by the recession. But that doesn't mean it can be just simply dismissed because the truth is that there are strong messengers out there that are using immigration as a means to motivate people, to tell stories that explain people's uh, marginality and people's disadvantage in American society that are distracting them from, I think, more structural causes. And in many cases, there is a, a, a fair concern that at the very lowest uh, level of wages that there is competition with immigrants. You found in your research that most white Americans would support a party that advocates things like stopping mass immigration, providing American jobs to American workers, preserving America's Christian heritage, and stopping the threat of Islam. Is that not racism and even white nationalism? Yeah, there, it definitely engages with the ideas of white nationalism. Um, what I did is I, I ran a nationally representative survey of Americans, um, of white Americans. And not just white working class Americans. No, this is white Americans more broadly. So this was a representative sample of white Americans. And I, I asked them, as part of a larger instrument, I asked them whether they would so consider supporting a party that looks a lot like the British National Party, which is a militant white nationalist group that uh, has run for small office in, in Britain largely unsuccessfully. So we, we, we offered that same party basically to Americans and said, would you consider supporting this group? And 65 percent of, uh, of the sample said, yeah, I'd, I'd give them a try. How large was the sample size? It was a little over 1,000 people. That basically tells you what the ceiling is on Trumpism. But that's a sizable number of people who, are, who find a pretty white nationalist party attractive. And so what that suggests to me is that tr the politics of Trumpism is unlikely to die with Donald Trump when he finally does sail into the sunset, whether that's in three years, seven years, or whenever the you know, television stops covering him. You said you believe Trumpism will survive Trump. How do you imagine the white working class affecting politics moving forward? Well, it really does depend on the Republican Party. 
Donald Trump successfully infiltrated the Republican Party and is attempting to change what the Republican Party is. Whether or not that happens will will really dictate whether white working class people and Trumpists in particular have a place. And, and we shouldn't equate white working class people with Trump supporters, of course, because they're, they're, they're very diverse and there are certainly plenty of white working class people who don't support Donald Trump. But certainly for those who do, their place depends on whether or not the Republican Party continues to embrace Trump, Trumpist politics. If they engage this group of people, they risk losing moderates and independents and perhaps more establishment Republicans to the Democrats should the Democrats decide to field a more centrist candidate and move to the political center to exploit the Republicans' move to the extremes. And so the, really uh, there's a lot of uh, politics that has to play out before we really know. Justin Guest, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Justin Guest is an assistant professor of public policy at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government and the author of The New Minority, White Working Class Politics in an Age of Immigration and Inequality. Coming up next, the invention of immigration. Immigration is a word likely to conjure up some heated political debates in recent years, but the concept of immigration has only been around a few hundred years. Neil Shumsky is an associate professor at Virginia Tech's College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences, and he shares with us the story of immigration's origin in the musty pages of one of America's first dictionaries. Noah Webster uh, lived in, in Connecticut, born in the 1750s. He was very cranky, and he had very uh, strict notions about exactly how things should be done. He thought that the United States was independent of England and that it should have its own language. And so he referred to it as American English. I think he coined that particular phrase. He wrote two dictionaries. Uh, the first one was published in 1806. It was not a complete dictionary. It didn't have every word in it. And he decided that he wanted to write a complete dictionary, which took him until 1826 uh, to actually complete. And it was the most comprehensive dictionary of the English language, or American English, that had, had been published up to that time. Uh, and it included um, thousands of words which had never been included in an in a English language dictionary before, particularly words that were native to the Americas, which were largely derived from Native American languages, words like squaw, uh, teepee, skunk, and various things like that. It was the first time they, they were ever in a dictionary. He was extremely well-known, and still is, for the precision of his definitions. If you take the subject of migration, for example, the word emigrate, spelled E-M-I-G-R-A-T-E, and the word immigrate, I-M-M-I-G-R-A-T-E, both mean the same thing in, in their essence, which is to migrate, to move from one place to another. 
But at the time that Webster was writing his dictionary and trying to deal with all of these different words, they were apparently used interchangeably. And that really um, bugged him. So that in his dictionary, the variants, emigrate and immigrate, um, have a, a different point of view. If you say emigrate, you're talking about a person leaving one country. If you talk about immigrate, you're talking about where that person goes into. Um, words are very tricky things. I think that the tendency is to look at people coming into the country as becoming part of the country. And there's um, an underlying assumption, I think, in the United States that if somebody wants to come here, if they want to come into the United States, they should become American, that they should cast off the ways that they've always done things and adopt American ways of, of doing things. And I think that the word immigrant, um, many people infer that that's what it means. But in terms of American history, the groups who had stayed almost completely in the United States and had very low levels of return were groups which were essentially leaving their homeland because of bad conditions there and because they were oppressed there. The Irish are oppressed by the British, the Jews are oppressed by the Russians, the Koreans are oppressed by the Japanese. All right, we're thinking about those people coming into the United States. Right? And we see them as coming into the United States. We don't see them as leaving Ireland. And they just wanted to get out of there. It's the point of view. So that, that yes, I, I think the words do make a difference. Neil Shumsky is an associate professor at Virginia Tech's College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences. Words make a difference, but so do numbers. And these days, it's harder than ever to get accurate numbers on immigration. Dinesh Zahoni is an associate professor of sociology at the College of William and Mary, and he says anti-immigrant groups are one reason it's so hard to get just the facts. Dinesh, you have been studying the ways people seeking to restrict immigration manipulate numbers to make immigration seem bad. Give me examples of where people or groups have done this. There's groups that claim to be environmental groups, and they create immigration as the big problem facing the United States by suggesting that the U.S. population is going to be increasing rapidly, putting pressures on environmental resources in the United States. They'll say that the population of the U.S. is going to grow from currently from around 300 million to half a billion by 2050 and 1 billion by 2100. Which would alarm me. Yes. You're, you're tripling your population. That seems really, really problematic and worrisome. And so 
for me, what was interesting was where are they getting this billion number? Is it not accurate? Well, it turns out that it is semi-accurate. And this is one of the key points is that a lot of the numbers are rooted in official government numbers. So I went to the census and in 2000, they had their first projection for 2100. Demographers tend to be super conservative, so they had a range. They have a low series, a middle series, and a high series. And the low series, the population in 2100 should be 280 million, which is lower than our current population. The high series is 1 billion. And in the report, it says both of these are extreme, extreme scenarios that you shouldn't take as probable. Instead, we're going to be around 430, 450 million. So these groups then say U.S. population is estimated by the Census Bureau to grow to 1 billion. And out of the groups that use this kind of 1 billion number, only one was careful and said, this is the high series. And even that group says, which is very likely given that the U.S. doesn't want to restrict immigration. You did a an experiment looking at groups of this ilk over one week in terms of what they claimed on their websites. Right. What we found was around 42 groups. And so we downloaded all the information from all of these websites over a one-week period to kind of capture a snapshot. Uh, one of the groups is uh, Center for Immigration Studies. Another group is FAIR. Another group would be Numbers USA. And Numbers USA does rankings of politicians for how conservative or how liberal they are on immigration issues. So the three kinds of main demographic arguments were that immigrants were coming in and they were going to cause the U.S. population to grow incredibly rapidly. The second argument was that we're getting overrun by illegal immigrants. And then the third demographic argument was that because immigrants were now coming from Latin America and Asia, they were changing the composition of the United States. The U.S. would become minority white. Right. That, the main thing is that we're becoming a majority-minority population. So there were environmental arguments that growth in population is going to hurt the environment. There were also groups that said the large number of illegals means more crime, our borders are going to be less secure. And for the um, compositional change of the United States, they were saying that would create tensions within the United States and fragment our national unity. But Homeland Security says the number of undocumented illegal immigrants is somewhere between 8 and 12 million. I went to these websites and I kept finding the number 20 million. There are 20 million illegal immigrants. And I'm like, from 8 to 12, how did they jump to 20 million? Where I could find it being cited was a Bear Stern report in 2005. And it's important to note that this one report has been heavily criticized for methodology and so forth. But it's irrelevant. The 20 million now is permeating through these groups. And some groups would say, well, if it was 20 million illegal in 2005, now it must be 30 or 40 million. That means that more than 10 percent of Americans are here illegally. That's equal to the total foreign-born population. And so the scale doesn't seem to be bothering people when they're presenting these type of numbers. If you look at then whether you support building a wall, if you think it's 10 million and stable, you might say we don't really need to build a wall. But if you think it's 10 million, it grew to 20 million, and now we're headed towards 40 million, suddenly you need to stop all those illegal immigrants from coming into the United States. 
What about those groups you found who argue to restrict immigration because of the worry about a white minority population? Yeah, so this is the one that was the most interesting of the numbers. It turns out that the Census Bureau said in 2050 that non-Hispanic whites are going to be a minority. That gets converted into whites are going to be a minority in 2050. If you're white, you might think, oh, my God, there are going to be more people out there who can vote against our interests. But what the census is really saying is that 75 percent of the population is white in 2050. Basically, if you exclude Hispanics, you're basically saying that if you're here from Mexico, two generations, three generations, you can't become white, even though racially they are white. So there's that component. But it also excludes African-Americans because you're saying immigrants threaten us, but the us is not U.S. born and include whites and African-Americans and also Asian-Americans who have lived here multiple generations. So in a sense, they're saying that the only real core American identity is white European. And that's the group that's going to become a minority and somehow be overwhelmed by all these other groups. So what's the solution to that? What's the solution to bad numbers swirling on the internet and debasing our debate about this? For me, it's really up to the press and up to academics to be, when they see these problematic numbers, to contest it and contest it again and again. Numbers matter. Roughly, where are we now in terms of those percentages? So African-Americans make up like 12 to 13 percent of the U.S. population. Hispanics have become the largest minority population. They're around 15 percent. And Asian-Americans are around 5 percent. These groups are still relatively a small percentage of the population if you're looking at Asian Americans and that Hispanics and African Americans, even if you lumped them together, are not suddenly going to be more than the white European descent population. As someone who is half Indian, half Jewish, um, for me, you know, diversity is great. And so there's underlying, there's kind of this race politics that's assumed that majority minority population is going to change voting and so forth. And that kind of assumes that all minorities have similar interests and that that's against the white European population interests, that suddenly when the number switches that um, they're going to be outvoted for everything. Is this the human condition? Are we always feeling a perceived threat when difference emerges? So there is this kind of idea that people tend to like their in-group and feel comfort around their in-group. But in large part, who is the in-group is socially constructed. And one of the things is uh, Ignatiev wrote a wonderful book talking about how the Irish became white. And he basically says Irish were not part of that in-group. They had to actually um, distance themselves from African-Americans to become part of that in-group. What we see as white was a contested thing earlier in American history. Dinesh Sahoni is an associate professor of sociology at the College of William and Mary. Next week on With Good Reason, a look at the opioid crisis through the eyes of doctors. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging 
to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. Music for today's show came from Blue Dot Sessions and Pottington Bear. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Allison Quantz is our senior producer, Elliot Majerzik is our producer, and John Last and Kelly Libby are our associate producers. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.